What did you do on your summer vacation? <laughs> I went to a wedding. That's all I did. And you know what? I'm perfectly happy with that. Okay. I, well, if that's all I do this summer, then fine. Good. Yay. Well, that wasn't the only family you saw. You also um, got to enjoy the lovely uh, neighborhood of Coronado. Yeah. That was just dinner. Okay. It's nothing to write home about. All right. Well, that's fine. Again, I just wanted to let the people know that we're not losers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is Greg's lame-ass attempt at a segue. What are you talking about? So Greg can talk about where he's been. (laughs) Newsflash, Greg's back in the U.S., and he still sucks. (laughs) So here we are. John, I don't know what you're talking about. Again, I wanted to know what you were doing on your summer vacation. I'm in... I'm trying to... Well, let me tell you what I was doing on my summer vacation. (laughs) Uh, big aspiring snobs head, snob heads out there <laughs> know that last summer I went to the great country of Kyrgyzstan, uh, namely the capital mm. city of Bishkek. Get ready for a book report, everybody. Indeed. Greg's, Greg's going to be here a while. Indeed, and, and I'm reading from it right now. Okay. <laughs> what I did on my summer vacation by Greg Mantel. Yes, and I'm happy to report I that went I, to Croatia. And I'm happy to report that I just returned from there. And the city is as lovely as ever. Um, again, it's a it's a great town. If you could stomach a 15-hour flight from the United States, uh, God bless you. <laughs> Otherwise, an ideal vacation destination for uh, Russian oil oligarchs, um, maybe some old money Europeans. <laughs> Ooh, let's call, let's start calling them oligarchs because yeah. they probably have all their money and energy, yeah. and they're oily, yeah. they're slimy. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yes, that's I a like great that. portmanteau. I like it. I like it. Yes, yes. Um, I was there on a short-term missions trip, just as I was last year. Um, and you know, is it, again another great experience. And if if you want to know if you want to know more details, just uh, personal uh, DM oh, me. Oh gosh, <laughs> Greg just loves bragging about his adventures around the globe. Indeed. You know who really needed you? Thailand. Okay, <laughs> those kids are still trapped in that cave. And I, right, I where know. were you? I was I was where were that you? Story. I I want to buy the phone. Already, I'm chasing after the the kids who have been rescued so far with the <laughs> with the the uh, their, to sign away their life rights to me for thirty cents on the dollar. <laughs> How come no one's I, you know, the news is covering it breathlessly, but no one has put into context how the soccer team ended up in a cave. Well, John, no one has explained that whatsoever. John, well, it's because you were never on a youth sports team, <laughs> so you have to know that there are team building. Is this a common thing? Yes, for sports teams. Yes, I, I mean, I remember. Well, maybe not sports teams, but again, I just experienced international travel. There are these things okay. as retreats where you kind of uh, the outside distractions of the world. And try to build up uh, your camaraderie. <laughs> By blocking sunlight? <laughs> well, okay. So they did not plan on... They perhaps could have planned this better. Not during monsoon <laughs> seasons when a cave could have potentially flooded and trapped them. Okay. I just... I, 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 Alright. How about building teamwork by playing soccer? <laughs> No, John. Studies have found that you have to try out different modalities will actually improve your performance in a particular sport. Um, they did this uh, in a 1996 study showed that runners who uh, attempted a different strength training program. Oh my gosh, uh, Greg is just a font of boring knowledge. <laughs> Listen to him. Go. Font of incredible knowledge. John, already I can hear people leaning in. Rapid attention. <laughs> uh, I'm really regretting making you officiate my wedding. <laughs> What do you mean? I, you need to fill. You need you're to maximize gonna, your time in that space. You're spending. You're spending no, a lot of money. No, the ceremony should only be thirty minutes. You're gonna drone on for at least an hour. It's like I first met John that's when not, we were born. That's not. He. I was after out of the womb a few minutes later. <laughs> that listen. I can cut it down to forty minutes. Okay, forty-five <laughs> minutes. But what I will have to say will keep people drawn. It'll be the greatest wedding homily ever. Oh, you are not you are not as good a public speaker as you think you are. <laughs> and I, this I believe podcast this, pers- is proof I believe this first four minutes proved it. Uh, no, no, no. Well, speaking of foreign nations, yeah. <laughs> it's well, I well also you know uh, in case people don't know, if we haven't dated this episode already, um, we're recording this in the midst of the World Cup. Unfortunately, Brazil has been eliminated, but the uh, soccer powerhouse was on our mind this week, John. Mm-hmm. I mean, America didn't even make it to the World Cup, so why should I care? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've got two words for you, Greg. America first. All right? That was clear in the choice of the team I was rooting for, and that's always clear in the selection of movies. But this is Greg's pick, so obviously we got to watch it with subtitles. Reading. Like, who wants to read while they're watching a movie? Am I right? Ladies, take a break. Fellas, you know what I'm talking about. And now you see why I'm just a font of information and John is just a, a, an abyss of ignorance. Unbelievable. Give me my American beer. Which American beer, John? Let's Don't name names. This isn't a movie. You can go ahead and, and endorse a brand if you'd like. 
Well, Budweiser renamed itself to America, so I can just say, grab me in America. Okay, great. I'm going to guzzle down a sweet I'm going to suck down America. <laughs> I'm going to suck off America. Wait, that didn't come out right. Already we're off the rails. But yes. with uh, Brazil and the World Cup at the forefront of our minds, mm-hmm. we thought we'd take in a Brazilian movie. Yes. So we watched one of the most celebrated Brazilian films in all of cinema, City of God. in English. You I know, say, I know. I was. I should have corrected myself. Or, Cidade uh, de Deus. My pronunciation, I assume, is absolutely impeccable. I know. All of our Portuguese and Brazilian listeners will immediately correct you. <laughs> okay. And of which they shouldn't. I mean, come on, we're doing this for them. Exactly. And again, I'm an American. I'm allowed to be ignorant, okay? Because mm-hmm. I am exceptionally ignorant, all right? Yeah. <laughs> American exceptionalism. And John, this was not my pick. I don't know why you threw this on me. This was your pick because this film was perennially on the top of the 200, IMDb top 250, mm-hmm. and you were aspiring to watch all the movies on that list. Uh, Yes, mostly out of like a sense of grim curiosity, because let's be real, uh, IMDb is a is a very specific crowd. What, what, John? Come on! It's kind of like its own subreddit. <laughs> You're telling me the Dark Knight isn't the eighth greatest movie of all time? <laughs> no, it's if you looking at the top 250 list on IMDb, you can definitely tell that they cater to a very specific audience, and that is uh, film geeks of the 90s, such as ourselves. Hence, why well, the I top would also 25, young, yeah, young, uh, overwhelmingly masculine, mm-hmm. and let's say below the age of 50. <laughs> Uh, let's say below the age of uh, 40. I, I th- oh, I, that too, yeah. I, I picture a lot of 35-year-old neck-bearded people, so let's be real. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and so it's <laughs> going through the top 25, I'm like, where can I see the Grindhouse inspiration? Where can I see the Quentin Tarantino inspiration? Yeah. And watching this movie, I assumed that it was going to kind of share that DNA, which it kind mm-hmm. of does. But... Boy, howdy, does it do an exceptional job at it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I was going to say, I think the film's greatest antecedent is probably Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. I, that uh, that as well, which is also, I think, in the top 10 of the IMDb yeah. top 250. <laughs> Indeed. So. so it definitely has that kind of grindhouse, old-fashioned gangster DNA baked into yep. it. But I think the key difference is, obviously, it's bringing in that, that Brazilian culture, which, again, American audiences aren't used to, especially me. So <laughs> there's a lot to kind of get invested in you know, something that's not quite familiar. And well, well also, John, what is that Brazilian culture? What are you talking about? Well, just the whole culture of the 60s and 70s I was kind of unfamiliar with. It kind of parallels America's, you know, the 60s. It's the flower power era, you know, a lot of hippies. Mm-hmm. They're smoking a lot of doob, yeah. you know, smoking uh, on their jazz kind cigarettes. Of open drug use, yeah. Yeah, and then you kind of get into the 70s malaise where uh, people start getting more into cocaine. They start getting high not to raise their consciousness, but just to kind of numb themselves. And we get the... Um, culture of the flavelas as that's going on, which I am completely blind to. I had no idea what it was like living in these slums in the 60s or 70s. So I think that was an interesting cultural experience right there. So you were taken in by just the mise-en-scene, like the actual, that you were watching kind of a different experience, kind of taking part on screen. Exactly. And while this does share a lot of DNA with gangster films and Quentin Tarantino specifically with the kind of like grindhouse flashes and the words on screen, the little title cards. Um, the nonlinear narrative. Which nonlinear narrative, of course. Um, I think what makes it quite unique is it's very on-the-ground voyeuristic style. And mm-hmm. of course, it kind of reveals itself that this is the story is coming from a reporter and in the movie specifically a photographer. Yeah. So even though the camera work is very shaky handheld, it's very intimate. And it's mm-hmm. edited beautifully. 
there's a lot of great shots that kind of like events kind of naturally lead into it. And then also, again, the nonlinear narrative, he kind of like withholds information and then presents it to you at just the opportune time to kind of give you context and reframe everything. It's it's really quite well done. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to speak to just the style. The style of it is what sets it apart. Um, you seem to speak to maybe the, the intimacy of it, but I mean, there are things like uh, that famous scene that takes place just lock down a single shot in a hotel in a sorry a hotel mm-hmm. in a apartment building mm-hmm. we're in a single apartment that keeps changing hands among these various drug dealers there's a great shot where a man is being held down and the camera and the camera pans around you reveal that he's being held down on his face by his foot by a foot mm-hmm. so yeah definitely it definitely has that kind of energy behind it i will agree with you there my only problem with the movie and this being my second time seeing it is that um, while the movie is based on a true story, a movie also has to feel like a true story. Mm. And you I think, think this as is a result of unreliable narrator. <laughs> well, maybe not unreliable narrator. This is based on a semi-autobiographical novel by a journalist named Paulo Linz. Okay. Um, so he's, I think, he's admitting to kind of fictionalizing things. But the movie, kind of like maybe a Quentin Tarantino uh, film just kind of needles a little bit too closely to like coincidence and um, resolution and things I expect to see in a movie and not necessarily say a portrait of life in a favela in the 1960s or 70s or even today in in Rio de Janeiro. Hmm. So, I mean, we'll speak to, as we get into the plot later, my biggest criticism is that, and maybe why this movie doesn't really have an audience outside of those, as, as you said, 35-year-old neckbeards who, you know, vote for every movie on IMDb <laughs> and vote it to the top of the... Uh, maybe that's why it doesn't have a, a audience outside of that. Ele resolveu dar um tempo fora da cidade de Deus. E teve que dar duro para render uma micharia. Que isso, menino? Didn't this movie get a lot of like kind of good critical feedback when it came when it came out? Oh, yeah, and it was nominated for four Oscars. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So why are you saying that? I mean, obviously, the main appeal of it to it is the audience we were talking about, the you know millennial older generation who grew up in the 90s and liked you know yeah. these new style gangster flicks, you know, mm-hmm. these 70s and style panaches. But I, I, I think because, again, it's shot in such a intimate voyeuristic style, like I said, I think that's why I kind of like bought into it. And I assumed, naturally, it wasn't based on a true story. Even though that title card at the end does, you know, pop up and say like, "Oh, by the way, everything you watched was real," or you know, Whoa. obviously it doesn't go. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't go that far. But yeah. um, I don't know. I think I did have the. I tempered my own expectations, not assuming that everything happened out exactly like this. I mean, there is. It is implied that the supernatural does have a hand in this story. So part Maybe of me where, understands where did you that, get that implication. Yeah. Oh, it's it involves the character of Little Dice. Oh, you mean Little Zay? Well, when he's, well, should we just kind of get into it? Like, let's talk about the characters. Yeah, so let's talk about the actual setting, which is the City of God Flavela in Rio de Janeiro. Mm -hmm. It starts when it's just a subdivision outside of Rio. Um, It's still uh, kind of choked by poverty, and we follow a a trio, a gang called the Tender Trio. Mm -hmm. A trio of uh, young hoodlums. Yeah, and that's the exact word that they use to describe them. They're hoodlums. They're no goodniks. They're ne'er do wells. <laughs> Get out of here, you rascals! And they all have nicknames, and they're all not going to make it out of the first act. If we're being brutally honest, <laughs> which he kind of sets you up with that. Like again, little title cards kind of give you the foreshadowing of it all. Well, not only that, also like the narrator explicitly saying, like, "Well, he'll introduce a character and says we'll get to his story later," mm-hmm. and then eventually it does pay off, of course. Yes. But uh, one of this uh, one of the tender trio's members is actually the brother to our 
quote-unquote main character, Rocket. Well, I'd say he's the protagonist. He's the... I mean, but he's, he's not really, who's... he's not a participant in the main events. He's, again, he's a distant observer because he is a reporter. He's a photographer. He's observing the events unfold, even though he's not a direct participant in it. He obviously gets I, folded I in. I think the movie does a good enough job of kind of implicating him in the participant, even if... Um, even I if guess, but it's not really pa- his choice. Paulo Lins didn't, didn't actually get directly involved with uh, the storyline he's, t- he's telling. Yeah, and exactly. And I don't feel like he's directly and super directly involved into the events of what's happening. He obviously gets folded in. But I don't think he's a willing participant. When he does yeah, kind of get involved, it's well, no, kind of not willing, but he's close enough. Okay, fine, fine, <laughs> fine. I guess we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's hot, so this is a contentious episode. I apologize. Yes. <laughs> we had, John, we haven't dated this episode enough. <laughs> okay. It is currently 260 degrees in Southern California right now. <laughs> yeah. In any event, yes. Uh, Rocket, his his older brother, is part of this gang. Mm-hmm. And uh, they run afoul of uh, one of the, and all the kids are kind of glomming on, and they they set him aside. One of whom is a little dice, mm-hmm. who later goes by the name of Little Zay. Mm-hmm. And in one of the you know better flashbacks, and probably he's also becomes one of the stronger character because he he does grow, or at least we see his development from just a small kid, you know, wanting to participate in this uh, in this hoodlumry. <laughs> We see him develop into a sociopathic killer, and essentially, if we're making a Goodfellas comparison, the Tommy DeVito of this of this story. Yes, he has big aspirations of being the top dog, obviously mm-hmm. spurred by the tender trio. Um, but in the earliest scenes, we kind of see what he's capable of. He gets access to a gun, and in the aftermath of a robbery where you know they made it quite clear we don't want to kill anybody, he kind of follows behind and just slowly gleefully start shooting everybody in the head yeah and uh, it's quite harrowing yeah and that's another thing i really appreciate about this uh, movie even though it is kind of like it has that gangster panache it doesn't glamorize the violence whatsoever yeah i just wish i felt its its impact a little bit more oh you didn't Cause... feel the impact of six-year-olds <laughs> getting shot okay good to know greg's a psychopath no too. there's only well there's there is one scene that it will it happens this uh, this opening happens in the 1960s. Uh, what happens later in the 70s? You, there is one scene kind of dedicated to how um, kind of uh, what kind of immoral these actions are and what it transforms people into. But in this scene, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of the the style isn't really <laughs> reflecting how kind of deadly it, or dangerous it is. Really, um, it, it maybe in this scene where the hotel gets robbed and then little dice, you know, gleefully uh, shoots the victims of this robbery mm-hmm. um, who are still, you know, downtrodden. Yes, maybe, maybe in that scene itself, you know, it does does point out exactly how ugly and immoral this this whole you know society has become. <laughs> but it's later in the story. It it happens so frequently. <laughs> Mm. That again, it, it kind of strains credulity just a tad. I see. I don't think that. I think it, it's because it's happening so frequently. You kind of do get numb to it, and there is kind of a sense that this is just such a part of life that people don't even really react to it. There's so many scenes where kids are just running around with pistols in their hands, and yeah. the adults just don't react because again, this is no. a normal everyday occurrence. And I think the way that the violence is so kind of banally shot just kind of captures that perfectly. The fact that violence is just such an integrated part of living in the flavelas that you just have to learn to live with it. Hmm, okay. I mean, I, I can understand your desire for it to be a little bit more dramatized, but I thought that kind of very flat, even-keeled presentation of it really kind of captured that true-to-life spirit of what the movie is obviously trying to capture. See, uh, I wouldn't say it's even-keeled because the editing is always going. The music is sort of always going. And... I guess that's true, yeah. Yeah. That's the only that's the only fault I have against the director Fernando Morales, um, who's directed some great movies. Who I, I actually really like his his other movies. This is the most stylized one he's done so far. So mm-hmm. this movie moves at an extremely quick clip because there's yeah. a lot of plot to get through. <laughs> yeah. So again, what what is a, really a massacre at a hotel is really the the uh, <laughs> um, the creed de corps of little little dice who then grows into being coming little Zay. Mm-hmm. Um, And so what I was kind of talking about with Little Zay is when he's christened Little Zay, he kind of goes to a a shaman of sorts, a spiritual leader. And he's the one who gives him his new name and basically says, like, you're a man. And he gives him this totem, this necklace Mm -hmm. as a gift, as a a token of the fact that he's grown up and he's a new man. And (laughs) he only gives him one rule. Uh, Don't feed it after midnight and don't get it wet. Um, No. He says, 
don't fuck while you're wearing it. And yeah. then um, eventually through some plot machinations, um, he's he's clearly a psychopath and he's completely irredeemable. But there is this kind of weird scene where we're supposed to feel bad for him because he, he's not a man with the ladies, you know. <laughs> no, despite all his charms as a drug dealer. <laughs> exactly. The man has no game. <laughs> <laughs> despite the fact that he'll kill someone with no remorse. You know, the ladies yeah. just don't find him attractive. <laughs> I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> Talk about feminism at its worst. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, um, so after a particular... Um, Harrowing Knight gets he catches the eye of a certain lady, but she's seeing someone else, someone who goes by the nickname Knockout Ned. Yeah, who earlier in the story, um, Rocket, our protagonist, did want to rob. Unfortunately, we see him kind of be a hapless criminal, and, and maybe this is where we get into the reality of the of the movie a little bit. Like you expect in a movie, like because we only have two hours, mm-hmm. things move rather efficiently. This shows you the little you know little ups and downs of everyday life. In our, in our introduction to Knockout Ned, it's in Rocket trying to be a hood and fit into the City of God, but uh, he can't pull himself to first rob Knockout Ned, who's who's really endeared in the community, who's really uh, revered in the community, mm-hmm. as well as another another lady who's you know working working as a cashier and she's just too cute and starts flirting with him, you know. So those those little travails work. Yes, to get to get the plot, <laughs> to get to the plot itself. Um, Knockout Ned, who's played by a great Bra- Brazilian singer, Suage Jorge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, the whole point is that he's supposed to be the most handsome man in the favelas. He's supposed yeah. to be the most handsome man in the city of God. Um, yeah. So obviously, little Zed, to prove himself, decides to beat him up and rape his girlfriend. In spite of his nickname, he's called Knockout Ned because he he'll knock out anybody. Exactly. Unfortunately, he couldn't knock out little, little Zed. Well, no, and again, it goes back to that whole theme of fragile masculinity. It's like... Because little Zed was feeling so impotent, he had to prove someone else impotent instead. And so obviously that affects Knockout Ned greatly. But again, going back to the whole necklace, what I was talking about, it's it's a minor plot detail, but we do get a little insert shot of the necklace being worn as he's raping her. It's meant to imply that, well, he's lost whatever beneficial effects he's gotten from this magic. And this is when the whole plot spirals out of control. And yeah, that's... That's partly when I also lose interest because this is when scenes become so expository. And this is in the final act when uh, an all-out drug war kind of breaks out in the favela. Yeah, exactly. And also it kind of loses that whole nice coming-of-age story that you kind of got in the first third. Because it, you, track the, you track the main character, Rocket, through his little boyhood and then kind of his mm-hmm. growing up into a teenager and he's trying to lose his virginity, but he can't get it with ladies either. Oh, it sucks. And it's kind of like... There's this nice little juxtaposition about like growing up in the favelas, you know, having to deal with all these drug dealing and violence, but also you're mm-hmm. still a kid who wants to, you know, mack on girls. <laughs> and so I thought that was kind of interesting, and sadly, it gets lost in the plot later on. Yeah, that's, and I wish, it, and when I speak to the kind of unreality of the movie, I wish it kind of stayed towards that, or at least it's it's too familiar for one thing, and it's too kind of convenient because those are, as you said, those are Rocket's two main ambitions is to become a photographer mm-hmm. and to get laid yeah um and as, as i mean not really uh, not really I, I, I mean he wants to get laid but i don't think that's his primary motivation <laughs> well it's one of them it keeps coming up i, I mean, mean i i thought they, that it's, more of it's like included over several scenes in the movie i'd say it's i'd say it's an important plot line I, I i mean i guess but that's just more boyish charm i don't think that's like a huge motivating driving force but, yeah but the point is those are both resolved in the exact same scene okay fair point fair point <laughs> which is yeah all which right is that just, felt a which is one of those extraordinary coincidences that just kind of pull you out of it yeah that was definitely um, Definitely not required. Rocket eventually does get hired by the newspaper, kind of accidentally. He takes Mm -hmm. some pictures of the gangsters because they kind of know him, and they're like, you're our friend, take pictures of us. And accidentally, that role gets put into the development of the newspaper's photos, and then they use those photos of the gangsters. And it's kind of On the front page, yeah. Yeah, on the front page. And it's kind of a... You know, exciting moment. He's finally published, but also, like, if the gangsters catch wind of this, they're going to kill him. And yeah, it's on the it front is. page of the newspaper. It's not like they're going to find out. Yeah. And, well, and, <laughs> and you know, in being kind of, like, contrasty, of, of course, Rocket is worried about this. But then they cut away to little Zay at the newsstand saying, this is awesome. I'm on the front page. Exactly. <laughs> Let's yeah. get Rocket back here. Yeah. And, I mean, it, <laughs> he can yeah. take more photos of us. It, yeah. It goes back to that whole gangster lifestyle. You know, part of it is just because you want to make money. But you also want to show how much money you've made. <laughs> Solta 
and th- that's fine. Again, like it's play, it's playing with the drama, which is fine. But again, speaking to the unreality of it, another big inciting incident for the drug war that takes up the final act mm-hmm. is the death of his friend Benny. That is true. Yeah. That's, yeah. Benny oh, is so much Zay's, plot to this movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Benny is little Zay's partner and a friend of Rocket, and you know, in in a to- in he uh, meets a girlfriend. I think I think a, a girlfriend that gets passed around among the major characters, unfortunately. Kind of, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe Benny... not passed around. She she under her own volition, you know, dates these guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, Benny is Benny is the polar opposite of Little Zed. Yeah. He's well adjusted. He's very social, and he really just uses the whole dealing drugs as a means to an end. He really isn't in it for the lifestyle the way that Little Zed is. Little Zed is all about, you know, the lifestyle. He wants that respect. He craves that adoration. Whereas Benny's just like, eh, you know, I might as well do it to make money. And he tries to get out of the game. He tries to retire to a farm with his girlfriend. Again, very hippie, very 60s. Yeah. Unfortunately, of- he gets killed. And yeah, that's, well, that's and again, he's a, he's a beloved character too. I mean, yeah. the movie portrays him as like more of a Robin Hood rather than a drug dealer, which he probably was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least the character on whom he's based. And yeah, it's just it's just too much of a coincidence. He's like, yeah, I've only got two days till retirement from drug dealing. <laughs> that's true. And again, that's why and, I never bought into this as a true story. <laughs> yeah. And, and it just so happens at his big final going away party where the whole yeah. town is there. He gets the killed. whole town is there and hey, he gets a camera. I know, I'll give it to my friend Rocket. <laughs> my best friend Rocket. Who boy. <laughs> I'm going to call you Rocket cuz you're going to skyrocket out of here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you could skyrocket to my farm where I'm going to live in 2 days <laughs> with my girl. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> and through the plot machination that's and through another machination too. It's a character who's actually trying to li- assassinate little Zay. Mhm. And instead kills Benny. So uh, the, the virtuous and, you know, innocent and beloved Benny, you know, mm-hmm. not exactly, you know, it's trying to heighten the drama, whereas instead it kind of pulls me out of the reality of the movie. So that's just, it's just another circumstance where I'm not, I'm not as emotionally as invested as I could be because I'm conscious I'm watching a movie. That said, that said, this movie, this scene does play out in one of the more, you know, heavily stylized and famous scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, namely, kung fu fighting is playing, and then a strobe light goes off, and then the killing happens, and yeah. there's there's emotional devastation on little Zay, who obviously had no idea of the killing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, again, speaking of contrasts, you see for the first time a death actually affect him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you're talking about the kind of unreality. How did you feel about the arc that Knockout Ned kind of goes through? Uh, I... Well, I, I I bought into it just through the uh, pure charisma of Sue Jorge, probably. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. He's absolutely great. I mean, all the actors yeah. are great in this film. Yeah. And also the way he, that he's characterized, he also sees himself as a Robin Hood, like, okay, I'm going to join you in this war against Little Zay, but we're not going to kill any innocent people. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to commit violence or, you know, kill anybody when, when we're committing these robberies and mm. amassing these firearms and going after this war. Yes. Um, and how, that, quickly that said, we, how quickly we lose our values. <laughs> yeah. That said, I mean, it would be fine if we stopped at those kind of, as the narrator explains, those little exceptions to the rules that he makes throughout this montage. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, what pulled me out of it is, well, it's, one problem is, like, we don't see... Or we do see kind of the impact, because it does impact his family, and that's what really motivates him to pursue revenge. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe this is to the movie's benefit. I mean, it's not it's not histrionic in that way. I mean, he's a pretty stone-faced guy, and mm-hmm. maybe that's what makes him a little more endearing. But speaking of plot machinations, there's a big final shootout that resolves this big drug war. Yes. So and one of the one of the exceptions of the rule is, or one of the exceptions of the rule that knockout Ned says, you know, we're not going to kill anybody. We're not going to kill anybody unless it's in self-defense. And yeah. they go robbing a bank. And unfortunately, he has to shoot a security guard because the sh- security guard was going to shoot him first. And but John, wouldn't you know it? His son is there. <laughs> the security guard's son is there. And he sees knockout Ned and he knows I've got to take revenge on that man. Yeah. So halfway through the third act, we get a little recruitment montage of yeah. uh well, we also didn't mention Carrot. Carrot's the actual leader of the gang. Knockout Ned is more like his charismatic face for his operation. Yeah. We see them recruiting people to their side to go out uh, to go to war against Little Zed. And there's one character in particular, this little boy, who's like, I'm going to go after the person who murdered my father. Little do they know. And again, it resolves itself so perfectly. Oh, I, can, I, I imagine all the film boy, fanboys like creaming their pants once this resolved. Um, I will admit, this was stupid as hell. Uh, yeah. The little boy's father was the security guard. And this whole time, he was a double agent, just waiting, yeah. just lying in wait so he could kill Knockout Ned himself from the inside. 
<laughs> that, as the Onion said, is how uh, most Goldman Sachs employees join the company. <laughs> <laughs> No segundo assalto, Cenoura salvou a vida de Mané Galinha. Galinha descobriu que toda regra tem exceção. Exceção da regra. Vamos lá! Seu gerente? Isso é um assalto, compadre. Todo mundo no chão! Todo mundo no chão! Again, it's another machination that kind of pulls us, and we're laughing at it now. Um, yeah. That said, I mean, the final sequence is pretty harrowing. Exactly. It takes us back, because this being a, a non-linear Tarantino-esque movie, it mm-hmm. takes us back to the very beginning where Rocket is faced with the choice. Do I have the uh, this Little Zay's gang on one side? I'm caught in the crossfire between Little, gang, little Zay's gang and the police. Mm-hmm. And speaking of things that don't quite work in the movie, the presence of the police. <laughs> yeah, we kind of get a sense that they're corrupt. But a very we, little, a very tiny hint. Yeah, yeah, but we don't really kind of get a full explanation. And it would have been nice, because again, we literally have a narrator explaining everything to us. Yeah. And maybe it's because he is he is a member of the slums. He is a member of the favelas. He wouldn't understand, coming from his perspective, he wouldn't understand all of the machinations that are going on with the police. Maybe that's why we kind of don't get the full picture. But instead... In the story, they're kind of like a deus ex machina where they kind of like pop in and just kind of ruin everyone's day. Yeah. Or pop in when they're needed to resolve any violence that's going on. Exactly. So, and that's especially true of the kind of final shootout because he does get photographic evidence of the police being corrupt, kind of like setting up a deal with little Zay, but we don't really get the full picture or a full explanation of what really happened. No, and, you know, if, if maybe we had those little crumbs earlier, maybe we would have known. It, yeah, exactly. It's like one of those, yeah, one of those and tiny And this movie's really good that... at setting you up with little details like setups and payoffs, so I'm kind of surprised yeah. this didn't really give you a nice setup or payoff. Well, as well as we know, there are probably a ton of them. Like, I could even remember that, you know, scene where little Zay has a meeting with a mystic who gives him the necklace, and that mm-hmm. sets up the scene later where he um, assaults and rapes knockout Ned's wife. That, mm-hmm. I, that detail I couldn't remember. Whereas this one... There's interview footage that's based on real life interview footage. They played at the at, during the end credits mm-hmm. of Knockout Ned being interviewed by the news, and he says like, "I've been arrested three times, but Little Zay keeps going free. Why is that?" Ah, uh, yeah, good point. So that's the little setup that Little Zay is actually in the pocket of, of the police. Yeah, exactly. But again, that's just the that's the only crumb that we have. Well, maybe because it kind of it conflicts with the picture of Little Zay that the movie's trying to set up for is this sociopathic killer who really kind of is in for it for the money, for the fame, for the the control, the power that he exerts over people, that maybe mm-hmm. implying that he was connected with the police kind of like downplays that a little bit or kind of conflicts with that a little too much. So maybe that's why the movie ignores it. I can totally imagine them shooting scenes where he's negotiating with the police, but then they kind of cut it for time or it just kind of, it, it, it adds too many shades to a character who's meant to be kind of cartoonishly evil. Now, having said that, I mean, we've, we've been spent the last like 20 minutes just poking on little holes in this movie. <laughs> That said, I do think as a piece, like it works overall. It's a very compelling film. Exactly. I, I, I think it's thoroughly enjoyable, fantastically directed. I mean, this is just visual storytelling at its finest. Yeah. So I, again, it works. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, my reservations are the fact that it feels a little too contrived. It feels a little bit too like much like a movie. It reminds me of Train Spotting, and um, I'll just echo what Rod Reber said about that movie. It's like it's it's a it's a fine movie. But you also want a movie to be like a reflection of life and characters and things like that. And I think that those little pieces are missing. I guess, but that's also kind of what makes it work for me is the fact that it does feel true to life, but also it's cinematic. So mm. I think it's possible to have both those things and they don't have to 100% be in conflict with each other. Right. No, I feel like they're in conflict here, bro. Well, I mean, because that's the... Too, too cinematic, not enough real. Uh, Maybe we have to watch City of Men, the sequel. Oh, <laughs> why can't we watch City of God 10 years later? I, that's a great question. Let's keep I, digging I, is this Is that well. a documentary or... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I just It keeps popping up on IMDb for recommendations. It's kind of okay. like after Hoop Dreams, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which obviously compelled the whole nation. Exactly. As I'm sure the you know, city god has compelled the nation of Brazil. I mean, it's, it's somewhat airing the corruption and absolute oppression that's taking place in these favelas right now. I mean, exactly. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully it's it's given a light to some reform. Hmm. I don't know. 
I mean, did you see those Olympic games? <laughs> what a, what a, and Brazil has been great ever since. <laughs> no corruption there whatsoever. No, no, we're fine. Yep, it's all fine. encourages folks to check out the other films of Fernando Morales uh, uh, the other films of Fernando uh, Fernando <laughs> the other films of Fernando uh, Fernando Morales <laughs> I knew it was you Fredo <laughs> yeah. I knew it was you <laughs> if you can check out The Constant Gardener that's a great movie oh he did The Constant Gardener yep with Ralph Fiennes yep Ooh. the crusading Ralph Fiennes and the, and the exceptional Rachel Weisz she earned that Oscar okay. in that year all right, I, I, I need to check out. I again, I had never, I'd only heard of this movie by reputation. I couldn't name you any of the actors, and I couldn't even name the director. So yeah, I'll definitely Fortunately, have hasn't to done check much him since. Out. Yeah, he's had a he's had a few flops since then. But oh, oh dear. maybe he's uh, doing the Paul Schrader thing. You know, just have a few yeah. decades of middling career, and then boom, first reformed. <laughs> I, we're back. Yes, <laughs> we're back, baby. First reformed is a hit. <laughs> That's probably what he thought when he was writing. Is like, I need a hit. I need a yeah. bona fide hit. What do I do? I know. I'll make it religious. Yeah. <laughs> That'll draw the evangelical crowd. <laughs> Indeed. Again, if you loved Heaven is for Real, you'll love First Reformed. <laughs> well, Greg, we're, we're kind of out of sorts. We took last week off, so I, don't, I, I just can't remember what we do next. Well, I've already done it, sort of. Oh, really? I've given folks a personal recommendation, uh, which we generally reserve for our final segment, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're on top of it, because it's so hot, I can't think straight. <laughs> no, I, well, John, thankfully, I, I don't know if you heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mentioned, I mentioned it at the top of the episode. I was in the great country of Kyrgyzstan earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15 hours of flying that it took to get there afforded me an opportunity to see a whole plethora of wonderful movies Mm -hmm. and instead of just spotlighting one i'm going to spotlight them all (laughs) oh boy (laughs) another book report from greg mantel first i tanya starring margot robbie oh yes sebastian stan okay i have seen this one so we can talk about this yes i thought overall a pretty good biographical film um a little unfocused because it does tell a story in three acts between tanya's ascension to a career her relationship with jeff galuli and then finally as as the movie declares the incident with, mm-hmm. uh, with oh my gosh what's her name i completely forgot <laughs> nancy She's kerrigan so, she, she, thank you <laughs> nancy kerrigan she literally grew up in the town next door to us so. mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's it's a little unfocused in that regard but overall i like the tone i like the laughs i like the the drama it elicits and you know even though granted this is entirely from tanya hardy's perspective it's not exactly an even-handed you know portrayal of her uh i thought it i thought it worked really well no yeah and i love the fact that it doesn't actually well it kind of depicts the incident but it stays very ambiguous about how much tanya harding knew and uh, I don't. Again, I don't think so at all. I think it gave her version of the events, uh, the, her version of the events, pretty clearly, in that she was only tangentially related to these these four idiots. Basically. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what makes it so much fun. It's the fact that, you know, hearing about it on the story, like the the news media kind of like turns it into like a masterminded plot when really we get the full picture of how bumbling and stupid stupid the whole incident actually yeah, the was. The people in Tanya Harding's life are <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it, it mines a lot of comedy out of that. Um, yeah, yeah I, well, I, I, and I will say drama, like, um, although, like, Alice and Janie's character, again, she's playing the sassy grandma, mm-hmm. there isn't much more to her character. Like, oh my gosh, she story. swears! Oh, yeah, it's the Murgatroy! <laughs> John, she's smoking on the ice <laughs> in the sport of figure skating. My monocles popped out. <laughs> so in spite of how, like, uh, I'll, I'll say, like, cliched or kind of Oscar-baity in the, the sassy grandparent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> like what what kind of dramatic scene she does have with of uh, gosh I'm forgetting names <laughs> Naomi not Naomi that's her that's her character in the Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> Margot Robbie what dramatic scenes yeah what dramatic scenes she does have with Margot Robbie uh, do really work. No, I think I think it does. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is wallowing in cliche the whole time. Again, the unreliable narration, the pieces directly to camera, but I yeah. think it it handles itself well. So, it, it's trotting well paved ground. But you know, it prances fleet of foot very well. So, yes. Mm-hmm. So moving on, John, I saw two stop ocean animation animated movies. Oh boy, my favorite. Yeah, and John, I think you'll be surprised by this. One was Early Man. Ooh. The other was Isle of Dogs. <gasps> And I think you'll be surprised by which one I enjoyed more. I, ooh, you've got me on the edge of sea, Greg. All right, this is what I was talking about with you being a compelling speaker. Okay, ooh, ooh, boy. All right, let's see. What, what, what do you got? What do you got? Early man is trash. <gasps> it's bad. What a disappointment. Are you kidding me? <gasps> wow. This breaks my First heart. of all, how t- the, the brass balls on these people, not to advertise <laughs> that it is a soccer movie. <laughs> I don't know how the rest of the world received this, but nowhere in the advertising in the United States did they say anywhere that Early Man <laughs> was actually a soccer movie. <laughs> well, again, this is, this is where why reviews and film criticism is so important. Because it can give yeah. you this vital detail, the fact that, yes, it is a soccer movie. It is a slobs versus snobs sports movie at heart. And the movie, the movie's title is actually a pun. It takes place in early Manchester. Oh, pun! The, the zenith of comedy <laughs> puns. This movie just loves its puns. I mean, from the outside, I was like appreciating how uh, steeped in British culture it was. I not anymore for me. Okay. I'm, done, I'm done with British. I'm done with inescapably British things. Okay, fair. I'm enough. a citizen of the world. I don't know if you heard. I've been to Central Asia recently. So. <laughs> Well, the other the other interesting tidbit about this movie is it is coming kind of not fresh off of Brexit, but it does feel like a very kind of pro Brexit movie, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, well, for centuries, John, the <laughs> almost for millennia, the British have played up their rivalry with the French, and that's essentially what this is. Mm-hmm. But the the problem is like this coming from the same people as Pirates, Band of Misfits, mm-hmm. um, and Chicken Pirates, and the Adventure with the Scientists of the rest of the world, but. <laughs> I was desperately craving that kind of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I will say the quality. I, I think they intentionally in this movie tried to, you know, correct, say, the little imperfections in the clay figures. You can still see, like, the thumbprints and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, the little deformations in their faces and bodies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I was also desperately craving, like, the, the energy, the jokes, and kind of the, the, the motivation. Like, the, this movie is set up so flimsily about it becoming a soccer match between the slobs versus the snobs, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, like, also just scenes play out all in the exact same way. Okay. <laughs> like, our hero, he's voiced by Eddie Redmayne. It's all just him, like, bumbling. It's always characters, like, bumbling. Like, there's never, like, a chase scene or, like, the the romance scene. It's all just so dead. It just died on screen. I was so, I was so, I, I don't know if I'm, this is registering, but I was so disappointed. <laughs> really? I thought the whole you screening this movie is trash kind of captured yeah. quite well. <laughs> anyway, not good. I was, I was again sorely devastated well again it seems like they were also kind of like re- trying to recapture that whole Wallace and Gromit because he has his own pet uh, you know non-speaking character who kind of gets him out yeah. of scrapes right what's, uh, the, yeah. what's the pig's name Hop Hop okay. Hob oh, Hob, Hob excuse right. me yeah. yeah okay well then they also have a cute bunny rabbit reminiscent of Shaun the Sheep and they don't do enough with him either <laughs> okay alright fair enough yeah so there's just yeah there's just not enough it's not that Hob is nowhere near Gromit I mean not even close okay all right, and this is nowhere near Pirates Band of Misfits, which is a movie you should see instead. Well, this 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 feels like a win lose situation for me because I really Why? wanted you to like Early Man or expected you to like Early Man, and I expected you to hate Isle of Dogs. But it I know, seems and that's like... the other devastating news. I this is the first Wes Anderson movie I've actually liked since <laughs> okay. I think Bottle Rocket. <laughs> Ironically, I've never actually seen Bottle Rocket, so <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm a, I'm a bigger Wes Anderson fan than you. Not seeing his most celebrated work. <laughs> yeah. Oh come on, that's not not anymore. No. I mean, okay. All the hipsters in Brooklyn love Royal Tenenbaums and all the other trash that he does. But <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think here what helps is first of all the animation is light years better than it was in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, I think he's he's definitely not trying to experiment as much as he did with Fantastic Mr. Fox. He's just honed what he's already learned. So obviously the second go around it's much much cleaner. Yeah, the the frame rate actually matches the frame rate of the audio, which I appreciate. <laughs> well, also, the audio sounds consistent, because like one of the weird qualities about Fantastic Mr. Fox is it sounds like everyone recorded in different rooms. If this this didn't happen. Only Jeff Goldblum famously recorded in a different room. <laughs> I think he said it in every piece of press that he did. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, again, he's just being honest. He's a busy man, okay? Exactly. He's too busy going around the world, swooning at all the ladies. It's just, ugh, he's probably mm, such a No, now. no, no, John. John, he hosts a, he, um, mm, no, John, he hosts a live jazz show oh, every Saturday oh, here oh, in Los oh, Angeles. Oh, yeah. oh well. I don't know if you knew that, John. He's, he's a bit of a crooner himself. Um, and he can, um, uh, yes, uh, tickle the ivories if he, if he so chooses. Um <laughs> In any event, uh, it, so yes, the the production itself kind of wrapped me up, as well as the story. I think he he's telling an actually kind of emotional story, and there are fewer ticks, like those little. There, don't get me wrong, they're still there, but those little like undercut with a minute detail, like mm. you know, like a character's reading a will, and you know, every character everybody's devastated, but instead, like you know, I also demand to, to be buried with twelve bottle caps. You know? <laughs> Some little tweet details, and granted, they're still there in Isle of Dogs, but they're they're more in the background. So okay. the emotion and the actual, you know, the importance of the story comes to the fore. Yeah, I mean, that's a, one of the interesting things I found about it is like there is that classic Wes Anderson deadpan style, but yet it's still mm-hmm. kind of captured. Like again, it, maybe it's just the acting, but even though it's just voice acting, they still kind of capture that deep seated emotion through every single scene like he he loves those kind of scenes where it's like a character is just stone-faced but you see that kind of one little tear roll down their yeah. face or whatever and i think that happens like oh this three this times. movie has the most yeah the most tears of any wes anderson movie yeah, yeah exactly yeah and it kind of it granted it does earn those moments because it is about a 12 year old boy pursuing his dog i mean you love akira kurosawa though is it is it all the the panache that you appreciated no that's that's the one thing i think that's bullshit yeah you know? no i have i totally believe that too it's like maybe there's one homage you can recognize yeah because <laughs> again it's 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 an american's idea of what japan is it's not an authentic representation of what japan is no and he kind of gets well, around that because kurosawa apparently yeah like, exactly. he's not he's not beloved in japan as much as he is in the united states yeah and the other thing too is he kind of gets around that because it's like, oh, it's not current Japan, it's future Japan. It's Wes Anderson's yeah. future Japan, you know. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is this like cultural appropriation at its worst? And no, I don't think it's it's trying to play like a like fantasy version, pretty much. Mm. In spite of me, you know, getting drawn in by the story, the villain's motivation is a little weird. Mm-hmm. And maybe that maybe that aspect doesn't work because it's all Japanese characters and they all just hate dogs. That's <laughs> that's their only that's their sole motivation. <laughs> Because they come from a tribe that adores cats for some reason. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> and no cats really play any uh, like point in the plot whatsoever. So it's you know, yeah. it doesn't really... What uh, You know what? The style is what matters. Okay, it's a beautiful film to look at. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. And the story... Yeah. The style is what matters. And also the story kind of fits it. And it works. Mm-hmm. So the first Wes Anderson that's, movies that's worked in uh, over 20 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so congratulations, bud. <laughs> He's just getting better and better. Yep. Well, I mean, it's a step back from Grand Budapest and Moonrise Kingdom. But no, lies, but lies. I, okay, fine, fine, fine. Agree to disagree. Okay, John, final movie. Okay. Now, you mentioned that cats didn't really factor into a story about dogs. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mention a story where the sci-fi premise doesn't fit into the rest of it. Okay. And that movie is Downsizing. Oh. I was really hoping you were going to say Show Dogs, but okay. No. I don't think that's on airplanes yet. <laughs> no, that's not on airplanes yet. Come on, Damn. John. It's still a box office hit. <laughs> it's still playing. It outgrows Solo. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> it's still playing at one theater in Des Moines somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, go check, go see Show Dogs. <laughs> That's what matters. And maybe, I don't know, maybe check out Downsizing because it does set up this, in the first act, it sets up this very interesting premise and this great twist mm-hmm. wherein a couple, they set up that, yes, environmental decay is happening right now the solution is to shrink people down to a fifth of their size so that they consume less Mm -hmm. and also the other added benefit is that your dollar goes a lot farther participating in the economy more and you're doing you're doing much better Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of benefit to downsizing and it's what takes in the our main characters played by matt damon and Kristen wig Mm -hmm. um the problem is in the twist and this is explained in the trailer uh matt damon gets downsized but Kristen Wiig can't go through with it. Yeah, she chickens out. And so I thought that would have been interesting if they stayed married. (laughs) And one was five inches tall. The problem is from here, it just becomes a midlife crisis movie. Greg, it's an Alexander Payne movie. What were you expecting? Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's what I couldn't quite square. It's like... It's like he wrote a movie about a guy who gets divorced by his bitch wife. <laughs> I guess that's that's one recurring scene. Is maybe maybe the perspective of women. <laughs> maybe the uh, has a bit of a jaundiced perspective on women. Mm. Maybe that's one little thing. Um, we'll get to la- we'll get to that later. But 
from there it becomes, you know, he becomes a little destitute because the bitch wife takes everything. <laughs> so he's forced to help out a a woman who's from Vietnam who's uh, unfortunately forced to clean clean buildings in this uh in this little person utopia. Mm-hmm. And that forces him, he's kind of obligated to her, and that forces him to, I guess, literally downsize in the way that we know it in our real world, where he's forced to, you know, do janitorial work and, you know, hand out food and things like that. Ugh, the poor white guy is forced into the underclass? That's not where I he know. belongs. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but wait. Boy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe this will be a teachable moment for him? <gasps> Ooh, what an interesting twist. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So that's the that's the main point of this allegory, and I guess the sci-fi premise is like, oh, he has to look out for the little guy, but he still oh, he kind of starts out as a little guy. I just guy. died. <laughs> that was so tortured. I just I'm choked sorry, on my John, own here. blood. We need fifty cc stat, John. Stay with us, bitch. <laughs> but John, that's not the that's not the grossest miscalculation in this movie. Oh dear. <laughs> not just the cliche of you know, oh the the poor white man has to work a blue collar job. What? <laughs> It's not just that it literally has nothing to do with, like, people shrinking in the final two-thirds. <laughs> Again, wh- why is it there? Why is it a sci-fi movie, then? <laughs> well, that way you get the shot of them drinking vodka through that giant bottle. Which is not in the final movie. Oh, it's not? <laughs> no. Lies. Marketing is all lies. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I'm assuming th- that being absolute vodka and mm. <laughs> be playing in a trailer that's going to be seen by far more people than the movie will be. Ooh, ooh, that's probably why. Ooh, that's probably why it's in there. Interesting. Mm. But probably the grossest miscalculation was the person, the, the literal and figurative small person that Matt Damon has to help, is a, a Vietnamese woman, played by a real Vietnamese actress, but she screams in broken English. Oh dear. And while granted, it's not it's not stereotypical or annoying in a way. It's still like it just it doesn't hit the ear right. Mm. There's something about it that like keeps you at a distance. Like it it feels like a performance, and it feels like they're it's straining so hard not to be stereotypical and not not really you know rub you the wrong way, even though it is because you know it's broken English. <laughs> well, and it's like it already so much of the movie is this cliche perspective from the white protagonist oh he has to like learn a lesson and everyone else is just kind of an accessory to that so it's like they could have made her the most shaded character ever but she's still just a side piece so it doesn't really yeah. matter how she's performed. Side, it's just side like... character, John. She becomes a side piece later. Oh, okay. All right, fine. <laughs> yeah, so that it, it's uh, while while we John, while we take a turn on cliche corner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they do also develop a romance that you do not that you do not believe. Well, <laughs> thank goodness he got divorced from that bitch Kristen Wickfirst, so he wouldn't have yeah, exactly. sex outside of his precious wedding vows. Yeah, and thank yeah, and thank goodness he got um he got his other two older male friends who just philander and, you know, <laughs> bone whoever they want. They know what's up. They know how it works. <laughs> mm. Wow. That's I I can't be I can't say I'm surprised that you weren't totally yeah. enamored with downsides. <laughs> no. It's weird how Alexander Payne does this movie that's about toxic masculinity really in a way. I know. <laughs> Except that's not really the lesson you're supposed to learn, it sounds like. <laughs> no, you're supposed to, you as the older white male is supposed to look out for the little person. <laughs> yeah, so it, it doesn't work. It, I'm sorry. No. Again, there could have been something to, there. Who are you apologizing for? <laughs> I'm apologizing to the world, which you know could have taken this interesting, what I will admit is a very 90s idea. <laughs> the, the 90s had a wealth of wonderful movies based on these little like what-if premises. Mm-hmm. And this movie just doesn't bring it to its creative potential. Now, I'm disappointed. Now I'm curious when The Borrowers came out. When did The Borrowers come out? <laughs> when did The Borrowers Remember, remember John Goodman was in an adaptation of The Borrowers? <laughs> yes, that was 1996. Oh, okay. You and I saw it in theaters. All right. It wasn't very good. All right. But anyway, I hope I, I hope it didn't take up too much time. Thank, yeah. thank you for your report, Greg. <laughs> all right. Back to you. I deserve an A. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's how Greg ended all his presentations in elementary school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you. I deserve an A. <laughs> Well, Greg, I have an A-plus to give to okay. a very special report by one of America's favorite authors, Jeffrey Tubin. Ah, but John, which, which expose is this? <laughs> it's not so... Which magnum opus of a, of a true crime saga will, has uh, Jeffrey Tubin uh, given uh, his golden stamp to? Okay, well, for those who aren't familiar with Jeffrey Tubin, he is a mm-hmm. legal scholar and author yeah. of many a book. But one many of, a nonfiction book. Yes, many a nonfiction book. One of his more attractive, kind of popular stories he likes to tell is he likes to take these kind of sensationalist tabloid stories that everyone's kind of familiar with from a glance and really kind of get into the nitty-gritty, the detail, and kind of put it into context and give you the larger picture. He famously did this with O.J. Simpson, 
in mm-hmm. The Run for His Life, which was the basis for American Crime Story. Yep. And he's done that with his latest book, American Heiress, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping, Crimes, and Trial of Patty Hearst, which I got a chance to read on my flight across America to this wedding that I was in. We talked about it earlier. I'm bringing it back. Yeah. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm giving you context in my life, saying, people. What else Don't do you forget. want? That's, that's what matters, okay? <laughs> what? You were the undercard to my trip to Central Asia. Okay, right? fine, Don't fine, that. whatever. <laughs> but yes, those who are unfamiliar, Patty Hearst was kidnapped in 1973 by the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Don't worry, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean anything. What are you talking Wait, <laughs> did I not just go to Kyrgyzstan and visit the Symbionese? Is that, <laughs> was that not a thing? Was I fooled? <laughs> yes. Um... The Symbionese Liber- uh, Liberation Army was formed by a guy named, I think, Donald DeFries. Uh, his first name uh, escapes me, but he was a mm-hmm. black radical back in the 70s. <laughs> that's that's one of the fun little ironies. He forms this uh, kind of black liberation group consisting of completely all white people. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> Do you think white people are going to go visit the Black Panthers? I mean, it's scary. <laughs> I know. Um, it's it's a, Again, going back to the whole I, Tanya comparison, Mm-hmm. From the outside, this seemed like a very scary terrorist organization, but once you get into the interior, you realize how bumbling and stupid they all were. They really had no plan. They're like, we need to capture somebody to really show that we mean business. Well, who lives around here? Oh, Patty Hearst lives down the street. Let's kidnap her. <laughs> okay. And again, she was a college student at the time. Exactly. She was a college student at the time, living with her asshole of a fiance. Whew, thank God she dumped him. And I, didn't, I didn't know this was a... This is a new rub in the story. <laughs> exactly. Continue. Um, <laughs> well, that's one of the interesting things. They invade their home and then uh, kidnap her. And again, yeah. his, uh, his her husband, his last name is Weed. Like, again, just kind of like <laughs> a perfect name. For this is Dickensian, yeah. <laughs> the, the important things that she remembers from that event is that he says, take whatever you want, and then runs out the back door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, I didn't know this was such a comedy of errors. Exactly. Well, John, yeah, well, when does it when does it turn? Because, again, uh, Jeffrey Tubin is a capital I important writer and mm-hmm. can also speak to the cultural importance of these crimes. So is there is there anything that really kind of brings, brings back the dramatic stakes here? Well, so the important thing about the story is it captures that anarchic, hippie, like revolutionary spirit going on in the in the 19th in 1970s San Francisco and then also just how dangerous and crazy a time it was you had the zodiac killer running around you had another roving gang of crazy black people who were just killing white people like you had all okay. these murderers just roaming around you had all these revolutionary you know cult fringy kind of people running around um there's a point where they've kidnapped her and one of their demands is they want Richard Hurst her father or, sorry, sorry, uh, Robbie. Uh, his, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm. If I'm ruining all the names, I apologize. Uh, yeah. Her dad. They want him. It's to... not William Randolph Hearst, the founder of the Hearst kind of family empire. No, it's no, no. Them, it's but... his. It's his son. Yeah. They demand that he sets up like some kind of service that feeds all the hungry people for like fifteen million dollars, right, or some. No, no, no. <laughs> That's the thing. It's it's really only for four million. And yeah. they th- and of course the SLA thinks like oh he's trying to get the cheapest amount he possibly can. It's because the Hearst family really didn't have this much money as they as everyone thought they did. Okay, <laughs> the Hearst family was actually hitting hard times. Like their glory days were well past them. Mm. Um, and then one of the little interesting tidbits that once they're setting up this food bank, a lot of crazy characters kind of show up to help. One of them was Jim Jones and his church. <laughs> John, I'm not familiar with Jim Jones's church. Please explain for our audience. <laughs> hey, you know that term, drink the Kool-Aid? That's where he comes from. <laughs> yeah. Footnote, 900 people died. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which I'm not laughing at the, you know, the people dying. It's a, it's an unqualified tragedy, don't get me wrong. But the fact that we use that cliche so much and not knowing the context is funny to me. <laughs> exactly. And then um, another person who shows up to end up doing the books for this whole massive operation, this $4 million operation, was Sarah Jane Moore. Do you know who Sarah Jane Moore is, Greg? I don't, John. I genuinely don't. Okay. <laughs> please please explain for the benefit of me and our audience. Um, a few years later, she would become, uh, she would appear in the news again because she shot Gerald Ford. Ah. <laughs> yes. So this isn't, um, what's her name, like Squeaky Fromm or something like that? Have I, I, got that I, right? I think that was her nickname. I don't know. I, yeah. I would have to look it up. Yes. Uh, Squeaky Fromm was her nickname. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I was prepared. I'm, I'm, I, was try, I tried to be as prepared. It's, again, such a dense book. 
and it's full of such like great detail and Jeffrey Tubin is an amazing writer and so I highly recommend any of his books to you but it's like these tabloid ones are just exceptionally interesting because it's like you think you know the story one of the interesting twists about the, obviously the Patty Hearst thing is that she ends up going to the SLA side she ends up mm-hmm. identifying with her captors and joining them from the outsider's perspective it's like oh it's Stockholm Syndrome she was brainwashed and Jeffrey Tubin kind of argues, look, the SLA was not that sophisticated, okay? They <laughs> they clearly had no intention of brainwashing her. What ended up mm. happening was, again, they were feeding her misinformation. They were trying, they were, uh, they sold her the idea that obviously your fiance is an asshole. He left you. And your father is trying not, is trying to get out of paying for your ransom. And again, they really had no plan of what to do with her once they kidnapped her. And a lot of them, you know, they're not hardened criminals. They're like, they felt sorry for the fact they had to do this. So they actually mm. treated her nice. Um, I mean, DeFreeze himself was kind of careless and drunk and harrowing, but everyone else as yeah. part of the SLA, they were like, hey, you know, it's going to be okay. We're going to return you. So they all ended up becoming friends, and that's how she ended up joining them. <laughs> so again, it just it gives you the larger context and the whole story, you know, separated from the sensationalist tabloids that you're probably familiar with. Hmm. All right, I'll have to check it out. But you gone. You said it's it's dense. I mean, it's, it's how many pages are we talking about here? Four hundred. No, okay, that's fine. Unless that's, you skip the acceptable. intro and the epilogue, but come on, you're not going to. No, no, <laughs> it's too much. Too many juicy details. <laughs> yes. All right, and there's like five pe- de- uh, pages dedicated to pictures. Which why do historical books always do that? They always put pictures. <laughs> in the nobody. Uh, what John? What do you think the first thing that people flip to when they look at the book at Barnes and Noble? Come on. Oh, oh! So if it doesn't have good pictures, I'm not going to be interested. <laughs> no. Oh, this and black maybe... and white picture of Teddy Roosevelt really sells it to me. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Ugh, again, Greg, classic Philistine. Yeah, I'm sorry, John. There's there's a reason movies are more popular than books. <laughs> yeah, no reason. Which is why aspiring snobs will never look at a book. No. And of course, if your brain has rotted away because of movies and TV, may we interest you in some social media? Indeed, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Give us a like and a follow, um, not respectively, but instead <laughs> flip that around. Okay. <laughs> yes, and if you have any questions, comments, or recommendations, we'd love to hear them. So you can reach out to us directly at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. And while you're listening to this on your podcast service of choice, mm-hmm. um, you still have a few minutes, so go ahead, hit that write a review button, click on that five stars, maybe say, hey, John and Greg told me to look at the thing. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You know what? You're well you're within your right to do that. This is America. Yeah. Okay. Don't got me slipping, though. Yes. That's a childish game being a reference. Anyway, John, what are we watching next week? <laughs> That's a great question. I probably should have had the schedule pulled yeah, up. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. And I. <laughs> I was too busy. You. I had the Suki Yafrom Wikipedia page on. Slipping now. Don't got you slipping now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. How many, yeah, how many yeah. times did you listen to that song while you were flying home? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, none, because I just forgot my headphones. <laughs> oh, no. You were stuck on a plane without headphones? Yeah, I, I hope, well, I did have special headphones so, the, so I could watch movies, but... What do you mean? Movie selection was limited. I had to watch Downsizing. <laughs> you say special headphones. I pictured, like, you know, they were only designed to fit into the seat. Like, they had some kind of, well, like, yeah, weird European prongs plug. in them. Oh, so they had this weird European plug? I hate foreign nations. Okay, America yeah, first. Yeah, 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 Thank yeah, you, Donald yeah, Trump, yeah. for putting those yeah, tariffs... Yeah. <laughs> John, America first or America alone? <laughs> oh, no. What about our trade partners? <laughs> you know, we're already watching foreign films. Why not watch another foreign film next week, shall we? Yes, yes. <laughs> next week we'll be watching the French film. I believe it's French. Blow Up? Uh, no, that is an Italian film. Ah, shit. I can't tell By the great Mike- <laughs> Michelangelo Antonioni. They're all smarmy Europeans to me. But John, this is a seminal film. This is true. This is highly influential. This Wait, is very important. This is another foreign film about a photographer. Yep. Oh my gosh. We got a theme month going. Ooh, let's keep this going. <laughs> All right. Yeah, foreign photography great. films. We'll do one hour photo next Our week. theme months always do so well. <laughs> oh, you can just see our, lis- our listenership skyrockets. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Shut your face. <laughs> well, anyway, y'all got that to look forward to next week. Mm-hmm. And if you take anything away from this episode, it's know that I went to Central Asia and I'm very interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, this is America. Don't got you slipping, no. Yeah, 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 yeah,
Bye.